You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. When I was growing up, my old school father taught me how to work. He was always giving me responsibilities to do, and when he got home from work, he would take me along to see that I did those responsibilities to his exact specifications. But the catch for me was that we lived next door to my grandparents and their lifelong friend, Miss Ivanko. So you know what this meant, right? In the summers, I wasn't just mowing our lawn. I was mowing my grandparents' lawn and Miss Ivanko's lawn. In the fall, I wasn't just raking our leaves. I was raking my grandparents' leaves and Miss Ivanko's leaves. And in the winter, I wasn't just shoveling our snow. I was shoveling my grandparents' snow and Miss Ivanko's snow. Now, some of y'all may remember the blizzard of 1993 that hit the, hit the Northeast. I remember the blizzard of 1993. Now, when the blizzard of 1993 hit, it was particularly painful for me because my grandparents had this long driveway and this long sidewalk, and Ms. Ivanko, she didn't have a pavement sidewalk, so you would end up hitting rocks and all kind of stuff. You, you couldn't get the, the shovel clean across. But my dad, the night before, my dad worked for the state of Pennsylvania, and part of what he did was snow removal on the roads. And so the night before the big storm was about to hit, my dad looked at me with a little gleam in his eye, and he said, well, Junior, get your shovel ready. <laughs> and he left out on the midnight shift. And in the morning, we got the call that school had been canceled. But all of the joy of school cancellation began to fade away as I realized the work that was ahead of me because Joe DiNardo on Channel 6 News let us know that 25 inches of snow have fallen in western Pennsylvania. Do you know what 25 inches of snow looks like? Do you know what 25 inches of snow feels like when you're shoveling it? I went outside in the morning. That snow was at my thighs. I got out there and it was one of those jobs that I stood there for about 20 minutes saying, this ain't right. This, what am I gonna do here? I, I, I'm trying to hatch a plan of attack. Like there's something I'm gonna do that's gonna make this easier. There ain't no easy to shoveling 25 inches of snow. I shovel snow all day, all day. No salt, just shoveling. I shoveled that snow all day. And my dad got home from work, and I decided that he and I needed to have a little heart to heart. <laughs> and I said, hey, dad, listen, let me, let me holler at you, man. You know, I, I, I was thinking as I was out there diligently shoveling 25 inches of snow, that there was, a, there was a better way to approach this, Dad. He said, okay, what's up? 
I said, you know what needs to happen? Grandma and grandpa need to get a snowblower. And he didn't miss a beat. He said, oh, they got one. And I said, for real? Where's it at? You had me out here shoveling the snow and they got a snowblower? And then he looked at me, he said, you're their snowblower. And I knew this was going to be the rest of my life. <laughs> we often say that we want God to do things in the world. We want peace in the world. We want healing in the world. But we fail to recognize that we are the snowblower. It was never the case that we were merely supposed to bring our own concerns to God, our own needs to God, our own brokenness to God, but those of our neighbors. God has ordained that there are things that will only happen in this world through prayer. And this morning, we have to realize that we are God's snowblower. We're the snowblower for our neighbors. It is our responsibility to be a praying people, to be a people that prays for the life of the world. Now, if you haven't been with us, we've been working through a series over the last few weeks on what are known as the Christian practices or the spiritual disciplines. And we have called this series for the life of the world. And the premise is this. Most people engage their spiritual lives from the position of spiritual narcissism. My, my spiritual practices are all about me and my life and my change and my victory and my job and my kids and my work and my life. But in reality, the reason why God has given us the spiritual disciplines is to order our lives in the world for the life of the world. This is what the disciplines are for. They are to shape and form us into a people that lives its life for the benefit of those around them. So today we're going to continue our series on the Christian practices with the topic of prayer. And I want to approach this passage through two points as we see the tragedy of a prayer life and the opportunity of a prayer life. So let's look at our first point where we see the tragedy of a prayer life. Now, when you read many letters of the New Testament, what you may notice is that those letters are specifically addressed to a particular congregation with its particular issues. But the book of James is not like that. The book of James is what is known as a circular letter. And a circular letter was a letter that would be read by one congregation and then passed off to the next congregation, that passed it off to the next congregation, and so on and so forth. And one of the things that a circular letter is, is able to do at times is it's able to address issues that are timeless issues in all communities. And this morning, we see James addressing a timeless issue. And you know what that issue is? Quarrels conflicts, and mutual mistreatment between people. The Apostle James identifies a common theme, a consistent progression at the root of our fights, conflicts, and mutual mistreatments. Does anyone have any of that going on in your life right now? Have any conflicts? I don't know. Maybe it's only us married people. Right? Does anyone have any conflicts at work or, or mutual issues with another person? Well, this, this morning's text is for you. James identifies a common theme 
and a consistent progression. Look at verses 1 through 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot do pain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. F.B. Meyer, who was a pastor, old school cat, once said this. He said, the greatest tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but unoffered prayer. The greatest tragedy is not unanswered prayer, it's unoffered prayer. And here James is telling us the tragedy of unoffered prayer is that it leads us into conflict with others and causes us to positively mistreat the people around us. What's at the root of many of our conflicts, our prayerlessness. Do you see at the 30,000 foot view, the issue of prayer has so much to do with our social interactions, our interactions with, with other people. But you might say, hold on a minute. I pray. I always pray for my day. And I ask God for help with my needs. Well, James got a word for you too. Look at verse 3. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Here James addresses those who don't receive because they approach prayer in a spirit of selfishness. Their prayers never rise above the level of self-interest. If they do pray for others, it's an afterthought. Now, I want to be clear. It's not wrong to pray for yourself. It's incredibly important to do this. But we're talking about, listen, we're talking about your fundamental posture, your regular mode with which you come to God and how you actually Aim your heart and your desires and your longings in prayer. Is the fundamental posture of your life about you? Is the fundamental aim of your loves and your desires about you and your own interests? James tells these folks that they don't receive when they come in a posture of selfishness. They don't receive when they come in a posture of selfishness. He tells them, you have reduced prayer to an exercise in selfish getting rather than the practice of becoming. You've reduced prayer to an exercise in selfish giving, getting rather than a practice of becoming. Prayer is not just about getting what we want. It's about changing what we want. God is out to form us through our communion with him in prayer. You see the two issues with prayer. The tragedy of prayer is unoffered prayer and selfish prayer. I feel like that, that should minister to us. That should check us. It should cause us some self-reflection about the way in which we pray. It's not just about what we pray, but how we pray, y'all. And God wants our prayer life to, to be a benefit and a blessing for the life of the world. 
Who are you becoming as you pray? Ask yourself that question. Who am I becoming as I pray? What kind of formation is taking place in my life as I pray? What kind of person am I practicing to become through prayer? One way to diagnose this, and this is easy, and I want, I want to encourage you to take this back to your own personal life of communion with God and also take it in your community. And I want you to think about this. What would you have if you got everything that you prayed for? What would you actually have? What would you be left with? Would you have a positively outstanding life while the people around you were in squalor and destitution? Would you have a fabulous spiritual life while the people around you never knew a glimpse of the grace of God? Would your neighbors be any better off if you got what you prayed for? Would your coworkers have increasing vitality and, and life in, if you got what you prayed for? What about your children? What about your spouse? What about your political opponents? I don't mean to get touchy. I know it's 2020. Would your political opponents be any better off? I'm not talking about the, the prayers of the psalmist, the imprecatory prayers where he says, strike them on the jaw, Lord. Not those prayers. I'm talking about the kind of enemy love prayers that we're called to from Jesus. What would be the situation of your enemies if you got everything that you prayed for? Would they still be enemies? Have you ever thought that maybe the only way that they'll stop being enemies is if you start praying? If I got everything that I asked for, what would I have? If in answering this question, the good and flourishing of others is nowhere to be found, there's something tragic to my prayer life. The tragedy of a prayer life is one that never starts or never meaningfully gets beyond the superficiality of short-sighted, narrow-minded concern for self. That's the tragedy of prayer. But there's opportunity, which brings us to our second point, the opportunity of a prayer life. Now, listen, this is what I want to say. I know the lives that we live here in D.C. I, I, I know what it's like, the frenetic pace, the busyness, the, the, the frantic pace, the, the, the life happening and, and kids and all this stuff. I, I know what it's like. But I want to say this to you. When it comes to prayer, many of us miss the opportunity because it comes clothed in difficulty. I'm going to say that again. When it comes to prayer, many of us miss the opportunity because it comes clothed in difficulty. And that's a general principle for all opportunities in life. We're afraid to roll up our sleeves, afraid to get our hands dirty, afraid to break a sweat. But very few things are worth getting that don't come with some sweat. When we're thinking about life in this world, I'm not talking about the grace of God, but digesting that grace takes sweat. I'm not talking about the mercies of God. They come freely, but appreciating and reveling in those mercies and delighting in them and being formed by them, that takes work. 
There is opportunity in prayer that we must not miss because it comes clothed in difficulty. Yes, uh, it's going to be difficult to wake up earlier. Yes, it's going to be hard to carve out some time. Yeah, it's, it's going to be costly to say no in some certain areas of your life to get that time. But it's opportunity clothed in difficulty. I appreciate there's a line even in the Muslim call to prayer that we heard over in Turkey from the minaret. And the last line of the Muslim liturgy where they call out five times a day, calling all people within earshot to prayer, a, a call that certainly startled me to awakeness when I heard it. The final line of their prayer liturgy is this. Prayer is better than sleep. Prayer is better than sleep. The, 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 they're singing the, 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 the the vocalist is singing this over the city in the early morning of the day. Prayer is better than sleep. And I know that if the law could get a group of people to rise up early in the morning, how much more should grace and love get us up in the morning to commune with our God for the benefit of our world? Prayer is better than sleep. That sounds like wisdom. A regular, ordered, focused prayer life is difficult. But there is massive opportunity. What are the opportunities in prayer? What's the opportunity in prayer? There are many opportunities, but let me just name a few. We have the opportunity to grow in faith through prayer. How do you grow in faith? You continually Lay your requests before the Lord for the blessing of your own life and for the blessing of your neighbors. And when you see God, he gains a tested reliability in your eyes. When you see him work time and again, when you see him show up, when you see him shift your own desires. How many of you remember prayers that you prayed that you're so glad you didn't get? I, maybe I'm alone in here by myself. I remember praying for things, and I, Lord, just give me that thing that I want. But I couldn't see what the Lord could see. And knowing that he's my father is all the confidence I need. It gives me faith, not only in God's good intentions for me, but in his supply for the world and myself. Prayer is not about overcoming God's reluctance. It's about laying hold of his willingness. That's what one reformer said. Laying hold of his willingness. You know how willing God is to work. How willing God is to bless and supply. How willing God is to do good. Many of us, I think, are under the mentality that we're more interested in the good, more interested in the good around us than God is. And that's often the reason why we depart from so many historic Christian understandings of life, we're determined that we're better than God and that we want better than what he wants for the world. But he's our father. And faith in his supply. You know one thing that my children have never done? They have, I have never found my children hiding sandwiches away in their closet. 
In fact, they come to me and Vanessa like we got an endless supply of sandwiches. Now, they are like the seven-year locusts when they come through my pantry, but that has never caused them to miss a meal. They have never missed a meal on our watch. They have never missed an opportunity to be filled. And anytime they say, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, you know, we're there ready to meet the need. Many of you mothers do that with your physical body. And you could not dream of allowing your baby to go without the nourishment they need, to go without the provisions that they need. Well, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly father pour out his spirit on you to equip you to do the things you need to do in the world for him? He loves to do it. You know one of my favorite things to do? When my kids come to me, I, I think it's instinctual because of understanding Christian theology. When my kids come to me and ask me for things, I weigh it, and generally I try to give them as many of my yeses as I can. But they figured something out. Slick little jokers. <laughs> what they do now is one will come in and make a request for the other. And when they do that, requester, form them to be an other-centered kind of prayer or requester. And it never fails. When they ask, when they come, Daddy, I really think Lorenzo would like to watch some TV right now. <laughs> I say, all right, all right. Because I want to form in her a concern for the other, a concern for more than just herself. Now, we could argue the merits of whether or not that is selfless, but as a general rule, I am delighted to do for my kids when they are, are interested in, in being a blessing to others. I remember one time we were, when we were on sabbatical, this just occurred to me, I remember this. We were, we were road tripping out to Colorado and we stopped in Nashville, um, of course, because I, I wanted to get some hot chicken. And come on, y'all. I got to school, y'all. I stopped there. We were walking in downtown Nashville, and there was a person on the street who was in need, and they asked me for something. So I gave them what I had, and I continued on. And it happened that in downtown Nashville on that day, there were a lot of folks who were on the street in need. And finally, when I ran out of what I had in my pockets, we continued to walk. And we came to this one man who asked, and he had a sign, and one of my kids read the sign, and it it touched their heart, and they asked me, they said, Dad, can we help that man? Now, I had, I had run out of what I had in my pocket, but because my kids asked me on behalf of someone else, and I want to form them in that good way, I, I, I decided that I was going to go through the trouble of going and taking some money out of the bank, Walking all the way back down the street, they waited there, and then I gave it to them to give to, to the man in need. But I remember the feeling that just seeing him with a heart that was full of the other, broken for the other, made me all the more want to meet that request. When you come with a tender heart before God in request for your neighbors, God loves to answer those prayers. God loves to answer those prayers. And you know why? Because it's according to his will. 
An other-centered God is out to create an other-centered people. And the more and more that starts showing up in your life, the more delighted God is to meet those requests. We have the opportunity to grow in faith through prayer, but we also have the opportunity to grow in hope through prayer. Tennyson said this, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. We have to pray for others with expectation rather than resignation. Prayer is an opportunity to be reminded of the God to whom we come and what he's capable of doing in the world and what he's ultimately planning to do in the world. We're asking for a foretaste of that more and more for the world. Douglas Steer says this. He says, pray for others. Prayer for others makes deep demands on the faith of an individualistic generation. Yet, at no point do we touch the inner springs of prayer more vitally than here. Prayer for others. Before we begin to pray, we may know that the love of the one who is actively concerned in awakening each life to its true center is already lapping at the shores of that life. Do you hear that? We can know that the God who is love, his, his work, his life, his presence is already lapping at the shores of that person's life. It's a beautiful image. But prayer, true prayer, looks like this. We have the opportunity to grow in hope. We have the opportunity to grow in love through prayer. Listen, the more we pray for people, the more we will love them. And the more that we love them, the more we will pray for them. It's a simple correlation. The more that you love someone, the more that you'll pray for them. And the more that you pray for them, the more you'll love them. Vice versa. It's difficult to stay angry with someone when you're praying for them. It's difficult to remain unconcerned for someone when you're carrying them on the mat to Jesus. But a question emerges for all of us who fancy ourselves very concerned with social realities and social issues and repairing wrongs. Let me ask you this. How can we love our neighbors if we do not pray for them? How? Tell me how. No matter how much we may share our limited resources, we are withholding our infinite resources from our neighbors if we don't pray for them. And what kind of love is that? If I, don't, if I withhold from you the greatest resources I got, and I only give you, listen, it's like this. It's like all our doing without praying is like offering our pocket change when we could be writing checks that are backed by heaven's treasury. Enriching their lives, transforming their lives, filling their lives. Are you sharing your infinite resources with your neighbors? We may not love them as much as we thought we did if we're not praying for them. And I'm afraid those who mock thoughts and prayers have never uttered a prayer to see God's power at work. Now, thoughts... It's okay. But prayers. <laughs> because like, Frederick Douglass said, prayer has feet. As he was criticizing much of the Christianity of his day because of what it looked like practically in the lives of African Americans, Frederick Douglass said that true prayer has feet. In other words, Douglass understood that when you really are in prayer and communion with God and when you're really approaching with the proper posture, it cannot lead you to mistreat the people around you. Amen. 
It changes for the good the lives of the people around you. So to say praying is no trite thing. Their needs, their concerns, their fears, their lives laid out before your Father, your Savior, your Provider, your Sustainer, with the faith that what He has done for you, He can do for them. You're not really caring for the world or your neighbors until you wrestle in prayer on their behalf. And I, I intentionally use the word wrestle because I think a lot of people are under this, the, mis, the, the impression, this misunderstanding that every time I enter into prayer, I'm going to enter out with a smile on my face. And all those who have truly lived lives of prayer have confessed that there are times where you come out with the smile of joy on your face. And there are times when you are sweating and trembling because you have wrestled with God like Jacob. And you come out with a limp. Because if it is about changing you and changing the world around you, you should suspect that there are times where prayer will be painful. But it's like the pain of going to the gym. Amen. It's good pain. Think on the idea of a robust, a robust prayer life as preparing us to conquer death and how our prayer life for others very well may be the way in which they conquer death. That's what prayer does. We have the opportunity to grow in love, but we also have the opportunity to grow as followers of God through prayer. Prayer bends our longings to God's longings, our desires to God's desires, our motives to God's motives, our goals to God's goals, our actions in the world to God's actions in the world. The continuous nature of prayer is that posture. It's not so much about all the words you utter all the time. It's about the spirit, the posture with which you intend the world. Do you know that God is here. God is present. God is available. God walks with you. God is there when you're looking at the needs of your neighbors. And to say, will you do something, Lord? And you know what? Most of the time, God's answer is, you're the snowblower. <laughs> But you'll never get there if you don't commune with the Lord in prayer. It's where he changes you to help you to participate in being the answer at times. Sometimes the answer is beyond you and beyond your capabilities. But you know what real love for people looks like? If you really love someone, then you're going to want for them things that are beyond your capacity to give. And so you're going to pray. But it's going to increase your likeness to Christ, your following God. We'll start to sympathize like God does. We'll start to plot on their good like God does. We'll start to make ourselves available like God does. Ephraim of Syria says this, Virtues are formed by prayer. Prayer preserves temperance. Prayer suppresses anger. Prayer prevents emotions of pride and envy. Prayer draws into the soul the Holy Spirit and raises man to heaven. There's perhaps no more significant way that we can order our lives in the world for the life of the world than through prayer. Remember the context of our passage, y'all. If the underlying theme in conflict is unoffered prayer and selfish prayer, then the road to peace is paved with prayer. Do you want peace in the world? Do you want 
grace and mutual understanding in the world. What James is telling us is that it comes through prayer. The ways in which you have conflict with other people, if you are a contentious person, you're probably a prayerless person. Or self-interested prayer. You don't have because you don't ask. And what you ask, you ask wrongly for yourself, spending on your own passions. You will change, and oftentimes the situation around you will change when you pray. But what is going to drive this? What is going to drive this way of prayer? I think it's the good news. The good news of God's grace for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus' life of prayer was ordered in such a way, he ordered his life in the world for the life of the world through his prayer. In the life of Jesus, he was always getting away, pulling away to commune with the Father. But we see in his prayer life that he prayed for others during his earthly life and ministry. He prayed for others the night before he went to the cross, John 17, that we would be one and that the world would know who he is, that the world would know that love by the way that we love one another. He prayed for us the night before he went to die for our sins, to bear our guilt away. He prayed for us on the cross. Father, forgive them. Other-centered was the core of his prayer from start to finish. And where would we be if it wasn't? We are saved as much by the prayer life of Jesus as anything else. Because it was his prayer life that maintained his communion with God, that sustained his faithfulness to the Father, so that he could give his life, so that he could enter into the garden and say, not my will, but your will be done. That sentiment didn't begin in that garden. <laughs> that was the culmination. He had done this a thousand times over, submitting his will to his Father for the benefit of the people around him. So when it came to the crucial moment, he was ready. And you know what? The good news doesn't end there. Because when he rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he took up his position as our great high priest who continues to pray for us even right now. What is going to draw you to get a life of prayer that is ordered for the life of the world? Know that your Savior continues to have a life of prayer and request that is ordered toward your flourishing. It's the good news of God's grace in Jesus Christ that leads us to live this kind of life. Do you see what I'm saying? We should be a praying people, not primarily because of our troubles, but because of our God. Our first impulse to pray should not be our problems, but his love. That's what draws us to prayer. And when you're beholding his love, you can't keep it just about yourself. Let me close by saying this. In the last 16 years I've been doing ministry, I've worked with, I've worked in three churches. I've worked with many churches. I've been involved with networks, church planting, Christian organizations, seminaries, and other groups of Christians. I've worked with visionary leaders who have churches filled with great systems. I've worked with leaders who aren't particularly visionary and who have churches with little to no systematic organization. Through my years in ministry, I've been around extraordinarily gifted people and those with moderate gifts. I've been around mega churches, big churches, and small churches, attractional churches, missional churches, and steeple churches. 
I've been around Christians who love theology and who love to argue theology and those who love to get into the secular mix at a pub or a coffee shop. But something I've learned over these years is this. These distinctions aren't the most important distinctions in a church. I think it's safe to say that one of the most important distinctions is this. There are two kinds of churches and two kinds of Christians. Those that pray and those that don't. Those that pray and those that don't. Those that treat prayer like their very breath and their very nourishment. And those for whom prayer is an afterthought if they ever get to it at all. A church's commitment to the practice of prayer is one of the greatest determiners of its health, its faithfulness, and its youthfulness. So the question for you is, what kind of church are we going to be? You know, the daily prayer project is not a throwaway thing that we do. It's not just to keep Joel busy. <laughs> if I could tell you how much care and thoughtfulness this brother puts into this work because of its formative influence in the lives of God's people and how much we want our community to be a people marked by prayer. Oh, please, order your life by prayer. Get you a booklet and begin. Order your life in the world for the life of the world through prayer. This is where our faithfulness and our health and our usefulness comes from. I want you as individual Christians to answer this question. Will you be a praying Christian or will you be a prayerless Christian? One might even argue to say that prayerless Christian is an oxymoron. We're a people dependent on our God to see anything meaningful happen in this world or change in this world. By all means, do your work some of you in public policy, some of you in education, some of you in law, some of you in business. Do your work, but remember that the most effectual work happens on your knees. That's where you invite the power of heaven into the situation. The power of God, the grace of God, the love of God. May our life of prayer, Mosaic, order our lives in the world for the life of the world. Let's pray. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.